I'm Kate Carrigan. Welcome to Croaky Voices. This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Walking two paths, hoping for the best and planning for the rest. Holistic care, addressing inequity in palliative care services, including delivering care to the homeless and the marginalised. You know, we talk a lot about palliative care being a human right, but what are we doing to ensure that people have access to that human right? Paediatric care and care for the elderly. And so we were able to create a cocoon around my son at home where he was surrounded by family. He was always in touch with a loved one, literally physical touch and also emotional touch. Just some of the themes from the 2021 Oceanic Palliative Care Conference, which brought together 1,000 palliative care practitioners and healthcare professionals from Australia, New Zealand, the Pacific, the UK, Africa and Canada. With the theme Invest, Challenge, Change, the conference urged governments to make good on commitments to invest more in palliative care and to challenge existing thinking that places it on the periphery of health systems. This time on Crokey Voices, exploring key themes and hearing some of those voices for change, including the OPCC Virtual Choir. And Dr. Nahid Dasani, a palliative care physician and founder of the Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless program in Toronto, Canada, put equity front and centre in the opening plenary. He told Crokey Voices how one man changed his life. Terry was a, a gentleman who I met while I was in my training at the University of Toronto as a resident and I was working at a large men's shelter and I was tapped on the shoulder to urgently see a man who was in crisis. I went downstairs, he was writhing, he was shaking, he was curled up into a ball and as I began to look into his mouth I could see what was causing him so much distress. He had developed a cancer at the base of his tongue and it had spread you know, widely. I tried to understand his situation and learned that he also had a diagnosis of schizophrenia. I lived many years on the street and was diagnosed one year before at a local cancer center. Due to his embarrassment for how he looked and his frustration with the healthcare system, he started to isolate himself and he started to experience pain as time went on. So he did what any one of us would do. He went hospital to hospital, ER to ER, walking clinic to walking clinic, seeking the kind of pain control that anybody should you know, have. Unfortunately, Terry was denied access to pain medicines that would improve his quality of life. It may have been the ways that people were judging him. Maybe it was the things he said didn't say it's hard to know but he was in pain crisis and he found himself in our care on that day i got him to promise me that he would start some pain medicines the next day and so i got to the shelter early to connect with him and i couldn't find him anywhere and i had learned later that he had overdosed on a combination of alcohol and street drugs this was a really traumatic event but it was also a life-changing event where i started to learn about the intersection of palliative care and inequities in our communities and it led me down the path um, to to try to inspire change through healthcare, but particularly through palliative care as a human right for people experiencing homelessness. And how often would homeless people like Terry be, be left with a terminal illness, be left undiagnosed and untreated? Undoubtedly, providing healthcare for people experiencing homelessness is an important issue and area to talk about and do work in, namely because people who experience homelessness are some of the sickest people in our society. 
people experiencing homelessness are 28 times more likely to have hepatitis C, five times more likely to have heart disease, four times more likely to have cancer, two times more likely to have a disability. And the, the average life expectancy for people who experience homelessness is 34 to 47 years old. Basically, homelessness cuts a person's lifespan by half, according to the data we have. So not only is healthcare important for this population because they are so sick, but palliative care is so important because they have so many serious illnesses in, on their profiles. And they're also dealing with the serious illness of not having a home, which leads to half their life expectancy being taken away from them. So palliative care is super important for this population and should be an integral part of any approach to provide health care for this population in any community. This whole experience led you to set up the Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless Peach program. So how does it work and how do you get that care to these people on the streets in these difficult situations? The Peach program is a mobile street and shelter based palliative care program that meets people's needs wherever they're at on the street in a shelter so no person falls through the cracks. It started very basic, uh, myself and a street nurse driving around in my Honda Civic um, one day a week. Um, and while I still drive that Honda Civic, the Peace Program has grown in the, in the, in the years since, and it now features a team that cares for you know, anywhere between 120 and 130 clients on caseload, nurses, social care workers, peer workers, physicians, psychiatrists, to connect with people on a 24-7 basis so that everyone has access to the kinds of care they actually need. We're a low-threshold, low-barrier team, meaning that we take referrals from anyone, anywhere in the system. About half of our referrals come from health workers. You know, you'd expect healthcare teams, hospitals, um, uh, cancer care centers, for example, emergency departments, but the other half actually come from people who are non-healthcare workers. We've actually worked with the social care community to actually help them understand and build capacity around what a palliative approach can look like. And so many of our referrals come from them with, with them recognizing the palliative care needs of the communities that they serve. So it's actually with those two in mind that we've actually been able to, to, to take great leaps and bounds for this population and serve them appropriately. Well, this has really revolutionized the way these people are looked after. One I read about was a woman by the name of Ruth, not her real name. Can you give me an idea of how different her end-of-life experience was to that of Terry. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about the fact that people who experience homelessness are not a homogenous group. I actually feel uncomfortable in settings talking to people about homelessness with one brush. It's really a heterogeneous experience. Someone like Terry was a man who was experiencing severe and persistent mental illness and substance use on the streets due to trauma connected to early life experiences. And that led him to the streets and that led to more trauma interacting with healthcare. Ruth's story is a real reminder that anybody, any one of us is just one, two, maybe three steps away from being on the street. It can happen to anyone. You know, Ruth was a woman who was in a marriage, developed cancer and because of her illness was not able to contribute to her household and her partner in the way that he might have wanted and so he had a separation with her which led to her having significantly you know difficult issues in in her local community and so she moved to a new city and what happens when you 
moving to new cities is that you're definitely in a fresh environment, but you're uprooted from the social and healthcare supports that you have. And thankfully, we were able to connect with Ruth and provide the kind of care that she needed. But it really is interesting to see, you know, these are two people who benefited from a palliative approach to care through the PEACH program, but had very different stories and actually reminds us of the many ways that people experience homelessness and the pathways that lead to the street. And from the conference, there seemed to be a lot of interest in setting up a program like this. What would you see as the main barriers? I think the first barrier is I don't know that people really know that this is possible. I think people know in their hearts, but they haven't been able to realize the potential that they all have. Part of the the reason why I do this work is to try to inspire people to say that this is possible, really conceptualizing the nuts and bolts of what this work is. It's not charity. We're trying to build sustainable healthcare models for people who experience homelessness, and we're trying to end homelessness while we do it. So it's everything from talking about anti-racist care to anti-oppression in healthcare to talking about housing as a human right, harm reduction, trauma-informed care, and, and many other pieces that make this possible. I think many people also are talking about creating a special team like the Peach Program, but maybe their local community doesn't need a team like that. Maybe what they need is just a, a pivot in the approach to serving this population. And, you know, I gave an example of how we went into a Canadian town and just, you know, hosted a conversation between the hospital ER department, the cancer care program, the primary care team, and the shelter, and all of a sudden bridges were built that weren't there before, and they didn't need to create a PEACH program, right? So sometimes it's just the concept of you don't need that outside entity, and sometimes that can be more bureaucratic in and of itself. I think people just need to really reach into that part of theirs and just do the work because it is possible. You know, we talk a lot about palliative care being a human right, but what are we doing to ensure that people have access to that human right? I hope the conversation that we've had here today is an ongoing one about the fact that death is a social justice issue, that people clearly experience inequities throughout their life. But should people really experience more inequities as they die? If we can't get the dying part right in our society, what does that say about us? I think we really need to dig deep. We need to reach into our hearts and souls and ask ourselves what we're doing to address that, to support those who are the most vulnerable in our communities. In Melbourne, Turkish asylum seeker Arkan was dealing with cancer and also trying to gain refugees. Status. Melbourne City Mission Community Palliative Care was one of the services that provided support. Margaret O'Connor, Emeritus Professor of Nursing and Midwifery at Monash University, works at the centre. Because he came by both, he was disqualified from being able to seek permanent residence. While he waited for his to see whether he qualified as, as an asylum seeker, he was placed on what they call a bridging visa. Um, the only support he got was a small government benefit and he was reliant on charity. He wasn't allowed to work or study under his bridging visa. When did he first come to the attention of palliative care services? He was unwell when he came to Australia and it was subsequently revealed that he had a cancer diagnosis in Turkey. He was treated in an acute hospital here in Australia and his treatment was not successful. So it was after that that he was referred to the palliative care service. So what were the community palliative care services able to do for Arkan? The charitable services like the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre had been very supportive of him in terms of providing some of the 
daily things he needed like food as well as the legal services. So the palliative care service was called in mainly to look after his physical needs but we found ourselves involved in quite a wide circle of people that were supporting him and supporting him right across the board. So he really needed counselling, connection to his spiritual supports and he needed financial assistance to provide his medication. He was separated from his family too, wasn't he? He was, yes. His family had managed to escape from Turkey and eventually they were able to seek asylum in Germany and Arkan was ever hopeful that his family would be able to join him here. I think as time went on, he became quite despondent about that and ultimately was resigned that he'd never see them in the flesh again. Now, this whole time, he's very unwell. He's away from his family. He has the support of the community sector and charities in Australia, but he's all the time worried about his asylum asylum status, isn't he? Yep, that's right. What do you say the lessons are from that in supporting people on the edges of society, the marginalised and the isolated? I think these people who are living in such uh, insecure environments, we need to have heightened awareness of what their needs are. The COVID-19 pandemic forced a rethink of palliative care services. OPCC heard it also exposed inequities in access to care, with the conference hearing of challenges to services for many underserved groups, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, asylum seekers and culturally and sexually diverse communities. The pandemic placed huge strains on the system as more sought community-based care and chose to die at home or in residential aged care rather than hospitals or hospice. My name is Michelle Wood. I'm the Executive Officer at Banksia Palliative Care Service, which is a community palliative care service who looks after the um, people who are living with a life-limiting illness in the north and northeastern suburbs of Melbourne. Now, in your presentation, you were explaining the impact of COVID on Banksia Palliative Care Services. What did it mean for your services? It meant an absolute total overhaul. It meant that every single thing that we had taken for granted as being normal process at Banksia got uh, reviewed. And in, I would go so far as to say, probably 75 to 80% of cases, that process was changed. So it meant physically having to look at our environment and having to look at our office space and who's going to sit where and people can't be close to each other anymore and looking at social distancing and uh, what is a close contact. So there's Absolutely everything there. Making a cup of tea, what does that look like now? Who do we have into? Who do we have in the office? Uh, right through to literally every policy, every process that we have in place. So what do we do when we're getting into people's homes? How can we minimise risks when we're going into people's homes? What sort of questions do we need to ask? What do we need to know before we walk into a person's home or even send someone from the office to a person's home? And you had to be um, quite resourceful with PPE, didn't you? It wasn't that easy really to come did. by. There was a, quite a struggle for us, to be honest, because it wasn't something that we anticipated. So when we started to ring our suppliers to say we need an increase in gloves and masks, because that, you know, gloves obviously is something we would use a lot, but masks weren't something that we would use as a norm. It came as a bit of a surprise to find that there weren't any. Even the hand gel, the antibacterial wipes, all of those sorts of things, our suppliers were actually telling us that they were keeping their supplies for larger orders. So we had a really hard time trying 
trying to find a way to keep our staff safe. One of the wonderful things that got us over a line until we were able to access the appropriate equipment and supplies to be able to send people out was that some of the local tattoo parlours needed to shut down because of lockdown. They actually reached out to us and said, we've got gloves, we've got gel, would you like it? Because we're not going to be able to use it. And it was just phenomenal to have that sort of support, to have people who had been put into that position where they were going to lose their income because they weren't going to be able to work, looking to see how they could help out people in the community. And it's not Mm. normally who you might think would come to your assistance? No, no, I've got to say that would not have been in the top 10 of people (laughs) I would have looked for. (laughs) for gloves and and hand gel. And and what about the highs and lows, Michelle? Were you able to keep up those services to your clients? We really were. And in fact, Kate, we increased our services. So every aspect of our service grew. We had more referrals that came in. We had more admissions to do. We had higher um, complexity of our clients in their homes because often we work in very close partnership with our hospital services so that people, if their um, symptoms become quite difficult to manage in the homes and we can send them into hospital. All of that stopped because people didn't want to go into hospital because of for several reasons, fear and hospital restriction, um, visiting restrictions. We had a higher carer burden as well because people were so stressed in the house. They had children that they were homeschooling. They would, Some of them had lost their jobs. Massive financial concerns were coming into effect, particularly after lockdown for a long period of time. So we actually, not only did we continue to deliver the services that we had been delivering, but we actually grew by our our client cohort grew by almost 20% in a very, very, very short period of time. And on top of all of that, we were also seeing patients who had COVID. So we had some clients who had been referred to us by aged care facilities who had been affected by the COVID outbreaks. And so I was sending my staff into aged care facilities in full PPE to um, help the aged care staff manage the COVID clients. So it it was a very interesting time because we were growing so significantly and also having to use resources we'd never had before and skills and experiences that we'd never had to draw on before either. And I'm incredibly proud to say that we did not drop the ball once. Did not miss one client. We did not miss one client call out. We did not miss one death. And we went right through this entire pandemic and have done two today touching my head now without one single staff member being affected with by COVID through work. In fact, none of our staff members have have been affected by COVID, so I'm incredibly proud of them. And what do you see as the key lessons for the future from this? It sounds like there's been some really positive results that have come out of this. I think that what I have learnt from this is that when there's a time of crisis, which is what we have all lived through and are continuing to live through, people need information. There needs to be a trusting relationship between management and staff. And that needs to be based on a lot of communication and capability of management teams to be able to show that they are doing everything that is in their power to make sure that they're prioritising their team. Um, Learned a lot about resilience, both from uh, a personal perspective and, and also from the perspective of looking at what people are capable of doing when these kinds of situations come up. And I've learned a lot about flexibility and and being able to move quickly to be agile being able to be agile is incredibly important when you're leading a team of people who you are asking every day to put themselves at risk to some degree by going into people's homes every time we send somebody into a home we're in a slightly higher category of risk so I learnt about making sure that people are really well trained and really well informed about how important it is to stick to process I think if I was to know about this in advance again, it would probably be to trust 
that um, you know people are able to um, to work really well and be really effective under very very stressful situations if they're well supported and well informed. In my backpack, the year after she died, I did the Camino de Santiago from France across Spain, 800 kilometres, inspired by a movie. I looked across at the mantelpiece. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you, my darling, with me. I put her ashes in the jewellery box. A couple of times I thought to pull the pin. But then I remembered who was in my backpack. A poem from the Grief in Older People project of the Melbourne Ageing Research Collaboration, seeing clients through an holistic lens, was a recurring theme throughout many sessions, with emphasis on listening to the wishes of those facing life-limited illness or at end of life, looking after not just their physical comfort, but their emotional and spiritual needs. One program which encapsulates the approach is the Creative Legacy Project at Liverpool and Camden Hospital Palliative Care Wards. Madison Nolte is Health Promotions Officer with South Western Sydney Local Health District. We can see there's more to people than just their illness and there's more that we can do as a health system to help people at the end of life aside from just treating their symptoms and their illness but um, seeing them as a whole person and being able to help them in a holistic way. So it's all about connecting artists with the patients on the palliative care ward. How does that work? We connect artists to our patients. We have everything from professional visual artists to singers or composers or poets. And how it works is we will partner them up on the ward. They will sit with the patient and be it through storytelling exercises. They're able to figure out what the lived legacy of that patient is. And then they take all of the information from that session and create a legacy artwork piece. It sounds like an incredibly personal and emotional experience experience, it must take some time just to break down the barriers to get the person to be able to speak freely to the artist and for the artist to be able to take those views on board and really get a sense of who this person is. Most definitely. Our artists are really great and it takes a special kind of person to be able to sit with someone at the end of life and make them feel comfortable enough to be able to open up about their life. I mean, we have some patients who are so excited for the experience and just cannot stop talking. But, you know, there's also the patients where we know the program will benefit, but they are a bit more closed off, a little bit more negative towards the end of life. So the artists actually work with these patients to be able to understand their lived legacy and the value and fulfillment that their life has given gives them a really good sense of purpose at the end of life and we're always really grateful to our patients who open up and allow the full experience because they only end up getting so much out of it and it's always more than what they could have ever anticipated across a broad scale. Give me an idea of some of the artworks that have been created. So many different types. I mean, we've had beautiful visual paintings on large canvases all the way to songs or compositions. And I'm always amazed at how they capture their life and all their loved ones and their favourite memories into just one song or even a poem. It must be an incredible feeling to see them, given this artwork, see the reaction from them and the reaction from their loved ones. 
Yeah, it's just beautiful and it's emotional in so many ways. They um, are not really sure what to expect. And then when you see the beautiful artworks presented to the patient, it's just so special. And we often get the staff involved and their family and surprise the patients. So it's just an overwhelming experience. And, you know, I can reflect on moments where the patient just grabs the artwork and just holds it so close to their heart and are just so grateful to the artist and the program for providing this opportunity for them. And it's their always grateful as well because it means that they have something really special to give to their family I mean obviously no one plans to be in that situation and often disease can progress so quickly so not everyone has the time to think about what they want to leave behind so to have that opportunity in those last days of life is just really heartwarming and so special for everyone involved. There must have been some special challenges or ongoing challenges in this COVID environment. Yeah it's been really challenging in COVID but it has at the same time opened up so many new opportunities. We've been able to take the program virtually so usually we'd have the artist sitting by the patient's bed but now we do it via Zoom so we'll set it up on the iPad with the patient to be able to still have that same experience and in some ways it's provided even more support to our patients because because of the COVID-19 restrictions especially here in southwestern Sydney we've been hit really hard with restrictions and case numbers so for them to be able to connect with an artist to pass the time while they're on the ward is um, been a really good companionship for both artists and patients. Just finally Madison have you had mm-hmm. times where where patients just didn't realise the kind of legacy that they've left. They sometimes felt maybe they didn't have anything much to contribute and then they've reviewed their life and and found some more joy, found a, a special meaning through this art project. Yeah, most definitely. It does happen all the time because sometimes a patient, maybe it might be their family who wants them to do the project, but themselves are a bit hesitant. And, you know, they tell me, you know, I worked the same job for 30 years and I just did my day-to-day life. You know, I didn't do anything special, but it's always so amazing when they sit down with the artist and just picking out the little bits about what a good father they are or all the things they did for their neighbours, all the special moments of their life and just think they didn't realize what special gifts they were leaving behind. I love that the program allows patients to realize that they've had a really valuable and fulfilling life no matter how that may look. Look at what we've started. Who would have Part of the song His Way from creative legacy project artist 
Krishna Umali. On paediatric palliative care, the conference heard of the need to listen to parents, look after the spiritual needs of children and provide care in a range of settings. Simon Waring, a member of Palliative Care Australia's consumer panel, has experience of both paediatric and adult palliative care, losing his four-year-old son Marmaduke and wife Milsom to cancer in 2012. We were intent on bringing him home. Initially, we brought him home. He lived a full, as full a life as he could, um, pain-free and comfortable, playing with his siblings. We took him camping. We didn't know how long we had. And then gradually, as the cancer began to take more of a hold, his obviously his energy decreased, the amount of medication needed to keep the pain at bay increased. And so eventually there were more limitations to the point where we could only keep him at home with really good equipment and really good support. So you had a very ill child in Marmaduke and your wife also with her own cancer journey. What was it that palliative care did that allowed you to make the most of that time? I think there's a common misunderstanding with palliative care in the community that it almost begins and ends with pain relief. Um, essentially, it's actually about comfort, and that's comfort of the patient. And that's not just pain relief, which is incredibly important, but also psychosocial support and also supporting the carers around that unit. And so we were able to create a cocoon around my son at home where he was surrounded by family. He was always in touch with a loved one, literally physical touch and also emotional touch. And it was only really possible because of the support of the palliative care team who were able to put the right equipment in the room to enable him to get home, who were able to offer the advice and support on the phone whenever I needed it, and who would make those last minute calls to either come in and change the drug lines or meet me a different hospital and sort of juggle whatever needed to be juggled just to ensure that my son's uh, day proceeded as smoothly as it could. Was it also really important in allowing the other three children to be part of Marmaduke's life and to be able to enjoy him and for him to enjoy them as much as possible? Oh, I think that was critical. Uh, We desperately wanted him to live as normal a life every day as he could. We didn't know how long he had. You, you don't know in these situations whether it is it weeks, is it months, is it longer. And he got home. We managed to install him in his own bedroom, surrounded by his own colours, pictures. He has his brothers, his, his sister, lying on the bed, jumping in and out of his room, running off with his toys, watching videos with him. So... It meant that he was in his element. He was incredibly held and nurtured within this beautiful, safe environment. But it also meant that his siblings growing up around him saw him there. He was part of their lives. There was no fear attached. We, we, we made sure that any, any fear and tension around that whole medical system was kept, not so much out of the house, but certainly out of that environment around Marmaduke, and that also um, went so far as the children as well, the other siblings. 
And it helped for your wife, Milsom, to also have that time, that uh, precious time with him. Well, yes, yeah, Milsom was also struggling with her own treatment. Um, she also didn't know how long she had and was trying. If I was, if I was racing into hospital with Marmaduke, she was parenting the other children. And obviously that's why we wanted to be home as much as possible so we could all support each other. But the fact that everyone was in the same house, everyone could just be wheeled in or clamber onto someone's bed, it just made it so normal. And you basically get to enjoy each day as it arises because you're literally measuring it. You're measuring those weeks in days. You're not really looking. You can't plan a week ahead. You can rarely plan a day ahead. And so you just want it to be as smooth, happy and nurtured as possible. The experience of wearing and other families is influencing the development of the National Paediatric Palliative Care Action Plan, which aims to ensure that children with a life-threatening or life-limiting condition and their families receive best practice care and timely support and information from perinatal palliative care through to palliative care for young adults. Being hopeful and being prepared can coexist. You need to be able to walk those two roads simultaneously, toggle back and forth between those two, and that hope can evolve as you move forward in your journey. That's Dr. C.N. Siao, Canada Research Chair in Palliative Care and Health System Innovation and an Associate Professor in the Department of Oncology, McMaster University in Ontario, talking about The Waiting Room Revolution, a seven-stage plan and podcast series to increase access to palliative care and bring it in earlier in the illness journey, a goal reinforced by others at the conference. I'm Melissa Reader. I'm the CEO of the Violet Initiative. Now, Melissa, you spoke about regret Regretful death. Tell me what you mean and how common this is. Regretful death, in the way that Violet looks at it, is where things don't go to plan or there isn't a plan uh, for people as they experience the end of their lives. It's that gap between what people would hope for and what happens. You know, there's a lot of cost in that gap. There's a lot of human cost for individuals and families and communities, and there's a lot of economic cost as well. So it's important, Kate, to to be clear on, on the things that cause regretful outcomes. That's what we're really fascinated with and, and what we're designing to help with. And we're all, I think, quite um, aware of these issues, but there's not enough being done to address them. So the first bucket is, you know, that the, the attitudes and preferences of people are just not well understood. They're not sufficiently talked about. They're not advocated for. We've got very low levels of, of uh, you know, end-of-life plans in place in Australia, you know, only 14%, uh, and we've got complex family dynamics that can often make things very, very difficult and can contribute to non-beneficial treatment in those situations. Second bucket is unwanted, unnecessary and unplanned time hospital, which is the result of really rushed decision-making or poor communication. Um, and the third is this very broad problem that people just struggle to accept, plan for and talk about death and dying. It's really highly emotionally charged. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lack of preparation and a lot of complex behavioural barriers you know, that get in the way of people making the most of their time together. Are we talking about people with life-limiting conditions or generally? We're talking about two um, two use cases, really, as we think about it, Kate. There's the elderly frail. There's people who are coming to the natural end of a very long and well-lived life. And there are people with life-limiting or terminal illnesses, uh, which have you know a broad range of, of um, circumstances attached to them. But that's what we're really looking at. 
So people where there is the ability to plan ahead if they can have that conversation. So it's getting over those fears of maybe the person who is facing death wanting to protect their family and the family also maybe wanting to protect them or not accept that their loved one is dying. That's exactly right. We're, we're looking at the 100,000 predictable deaths that happen in Australia each year, the deaths that, that can be planned for, deaths where we can do so much more to make sure that that experience is closer to what that person wants and, and what that family needs. You know, that that is a, a very real gap in the system today. And, and what VAD are looking at is how can we help with the human and the social and the emotional aspects of those situations? There's very good clinical care in, in most of the situations for the person who is dying, but there's not enough attention to the non-clinical aspects and there's certainly not enough support provided to the people around the person who is dying. That group of people are really unsupported and, un- and unprepared. They're really struggling with their own resilience and well-being, and they find it incredibly hard to access and navigate services. So that's the group that we're really, really designing for, and we know that, that it's, it's an important kind of combination of gaps, non-clinical care and uh, support for the people around the one that is dying. Well, how do you envisage a really good system? What sort of people would be involved and how would they help? What good looks like from Violet's perspective is that there are skilled people right across the last stage of life that can recognise the families and caregivers that are facing this experience and they can open better conversations. They can really lean into those conversations and they can create referral moments through to Violet so that we can work really synergistically, very complementary way in parallel with the good clinical care that 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 individual will receive. So that, you know, in a future state, um, that person does have an experience that aligns with their preferences and that their family and caregivers get the relief and the resilience that they need as they go through that, that they have fewer regrets. And as a result of that, they can return to their lives and to their work more fully after the death of a loved one. So we do a lot of work uh, with an evidence-based communication science framework that's delivered by Violet Guides, who all have a lived experience. You know, we know we need help making sense this situation where in every way hardwired to avoid it as humans. Uh, But we need to step up and and really help people make more sense of the last stage of life and, and be able to accept, prepare, talk about and plan for. Another evolving type of support available for end of life is through death doulas who provide non-medical care for the dying and their families. The conference heard of growing numbers of death doulas taking part in an online course providing a platform for open communication on death and dying. I'm Helen Callanan, the Managing Director and Founder and lead educator for Preparing the Way, and we deliver end-of-life doula training across Australia and New Zealand. What made you become or want to become a death doula? Well, it sort of happened accidentally almost, um, Kate. I was actually a natural therapist uh, many long years ago and was working uh, with Reiki and Chinese medicine. Through that work, I got to start to work with a lot of people who were very ill, terminally ill and dying. I organically started to do what I now know is the work of doula. For example, I was sitting vigil with people at their bedside who were dying. I became a bit of a liaison and support person with a family, talking with doctors and nurses and trying to understand what was happening and what options they had. Some families were like, we really want to take our person home. How can we do that? I'd be like, you know, I can help you do that. We'll find you a hospital bed and we can hire one of those. And really, when you break it all down, you know, in hindsight, what I can see now... 
and this to me is the heart of doula work, is that I was just responding to what was needed in the moment, Kate. And sometimes that was supporting people in grief. Sometimes it was talking to people who were dying about their fears or their concerns, really responding to the need that arose in the moment. So you were kind of a midway point. You were a way of being able to help that communication, some things that might be too hard for the family to say to the patient or the loved Mm -hmm. one to say to the patient or the patient to communicate to them. Yeah, well, one thing I just would like to say, first of all, is that I don't work with patients. I work with people. Maybe we might call a person that I work with a client. That really is pointing to a big issue, which I think happens a lot. Death has become a very medicalized event. And it actually isn't. It's a deeply personal family, community event. And so, yes, it's about responding to and and being that liaison, being that intermediary. You know, a lot of people just don't know what options they have. It's like they get into this system of medicalization of care. And, And please don't misunderstand me. I can't do my job without great medical and nursing delivered palliative care. That's crucial and most people need that. What I'm saying is that there are a lot of gaps, but there's so many other areas of support, Kate, that are needed um, that to, to be able to really fully support a family or a person who's approaching their end of life. Would you help somebody work on a plan of how they might see their end of life? Absolutely. Doing a diary, a living yep. eulogy, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. So the thing with an end of life doula is that we work across the entire spectrum. So I work with people who don't even have a diagnosis or aren't aging or aren't grieving, people who are wanting to plan for their end of life, put their plans in place so it's not a burden to their family so their voice can be heard. So there's that. Then I work with people who are living with their illness and who are wanting to navigate options and look at what are the plans my family can make and I can make. Then I work with people who are actively dying, so in that final stage. Then I work with families that are sort of around the death and helping people maybe take their person home and care for them at home and after death. We really advocate for home-based after-death care, family-led after-death care, family-led funeral ceremonies and rites and working alongside funeral directors in some cases, but really empowering the families and the people at end of life to know their choices but also to be able to fulfill them according to their values. So often today, and values and choices are imposed upon us and control and capacity is often taken from people as they're aging, as they're dying, whereas we're about giving people back that voice where possible and advocating and supporting them according to their preferences. What matches you and your values and how can we support you fulfil those? How intimate is the relationship you have with these people, Helen, and how do you actually find them? How do they find you? Well, in terms of the the relationship, that varies. Sometimes I work with a person who wants to support someone in their family, so I'm quite removed. So empowering them to support their person. Well, sometimes I'm helping the family navigate this and navigate their own relationships because a lot of stuff can start coming up for families. So sometimes I'm quite deep in. Sometimes I'm sort of on the outside contributing, if you like, from the outside rather than deep inside. Sometimes the relationships can be changing as well. Some people, as they're approaching end of life, they want less people around them. Some people want more support around them. So again, it's so individual. And that's one of the things I think that is really stands out that a doula is able to deliver is individual and authentic continuity of care throughout all of those changing stages. 
You asked me about how people can find an end-of-life doula. There's more and more. I mean, this is an emerging industry in Australia, but it's really fast-growing. So, for example, on our website, pairingtheway.com.au, we have a find a doula. So I've trained doulas all across Australia and New Zealand. We have people come to us. Uh, One final thing, if I can just add it, I think is so crucial a point to get across is, you know, we've created a bit of a monster in our world, and that is we've created a paradigm where we live like it's life versus death, that death is something to be pushed away, that it's something to be held off, to be held at bay. Our medical system is set up to that with life-prolonging things. But the truth is death is one of the chapters of life, of every single life. What if we could actually embrace that chapter and talk about it and explore it for all of the mystery and the magic that's held within it. Because truthfully, Kate, it can be a remarkably beautiful time and not every time, but the more we can embrace it and deal with our fear, and fear is usually absence of knowledge and understanding. So by having knowledge and understanding and understanding our choices and our options, that's empowering. And a doula is about empowering people. For those in rural and regional areas, palliative care can be hard to access, with less resources, poorer communities and fewer healthcare professionals per capita. In northern New South Wales, this need led to an all-in community effort led by Judy Hollingworth, former chair and founder of Manning Valley Push for Palliative, who explained the services the organisation provides. It has two pieces to it. One is... In the hospital, the contribution we've made there is to buy particular equipment, which is now permanently in the hospital, like recliner chairs, so that people who are coming towards the end of life or in their last months, weeks or days, if they're in hospital for extended periods, they don't have to be in bed the entire time. And it's better for them if they're not in bed the entire time, as many would know. That equipment makes it possible for people to have a bit more movement, a bit more quality of life, less pain, less discomfort. In the community, we've raised money and contributed to an equipment loan service, a range of different things, which are also to provide comfort and alleviate discomfort, ameliorate really some of the physical discomfort of um, end of life or incurable illness. And also for those people who are on a faster trajectory, quite often they've gone into hospital, they've discovered they've got incurable illness, they then have to, they're discharged and they're going home and they're in the palliative care journey, the end of life journey. It's a shock. It's come suddenly. It's going quickly. And they go home sometimes to situations where the care at home can't meet their needs. They had no idea this was coming, so they don't have any way of funding the care they might need at home. So we will fund care to come into the home where it's beyond what the nursing teams can do. Things like personal care, just to have a shower every couple of days, to be assisted in the home, maybe home cleaning. They're practical things, really. But really, there's an undertow of when people feel or find they have that support, there's a bit of being able to breathe out a bit. Ah, we don't need to worry. We can have some care at home. No, we don't have the money for that yet, but somebody else is funding that. And that just gives us a bit of breathing space to settle into this enormous change that's coming at us. How did you and others make this happen in a place like the New South Wales Manning Valley 
which is one of the fastest ageing and poorest electorates in the state. Look, it's just sheer community um, collaboration, really. It was sort of an accident. (laughs) I was in Canberra as my sister's primary carer, as she was in her last year of life. And there was a palliative care nurse there, Robin Hingley, who gave me a tremendous amount of support in doing that. I really didn't know much about how to conduct myself and how to meet my sister in the journey that she was in. She was just fabulous. And she said to me, you know, you've got a knack for this. You've got a feel for it your community in the Malling Valley that you've just moved to, they don't have very many people who have this kind of feel for things. It's patchy. The palliative care teams are doing their best, but it's, I don't know, make something happen in the community about that. It led to a series of things like a public meeting and me going around and talking to people and trying to understand the community and what was and wasn't happening. And just gradually people came together. They responded to the public meeting there was so clearly a strong enough community interest and so we've created a community organization we made it formal we made it a charity I thought if we set this up really well it it makes it easy for people to make donations we can function properly as an organization and so really through collaborating with the healthcare practitioners talking to the GPs encouraging them into it having lovely community events. So we've just tried to make as much noise as possible in the community to say, look, this is something you can have if you need it. It's so different to my life in Sydney. Mm. I think that's something about regional and rural communities. People really are quick to step up. And And the stories get out quickly, don't they? The stories get out so people know of somebody who's been affected and been helped. What would you say to others wanting a similar service? I'd say just step up and do it. I find the local media is interested. Of course, they want local stories. We had a team of people who had all sorts of skills and somehow or other, when we put them together in the mix and just stirred them around, we just had the right clutch of things. And Judy, what's it meant to you personally? How's it touched you and changed your life? It's touched me very deeply, actually. I've done a lot of study, so I've learned a lot about palliative care. And I saw personally that what was happening is quite a lot of the difficulty and struggle and pain people were having was in the other arms of palliative care, particularly in the spiritual care side of it. I could see that the pain was existential pain and there's no amount of medication really that can deal with that except to blank people out. And so I've trained as a spiritual care practitioner. So I'm just partway through a master's degree in spiritual care and I work as a spiritual care practitioner in aged care now. And I'm very often with people as they're coming through to that last time, that last part of life and just sitting with them and holding their hands as they're dying. It's an honour. It's just such an honour to be with people at that time. Our final word in this look at the OPCC conference comes from Mira Agar, Board Chair for Palliative Care Australia, who, amongst other things, backed the call from Dr Nahid Dasani to get political over palliative care access and equity. I think it's important because the decisions around healthcare policy and clinical services and the way they're funded are made at a political level. So if we're not at that table and speaking language that the political parties and decision makers can understand, then we're not really going to get what is needed to improve palliative care across the country. And one of the major things there is funding. 
I think funding and the way services are delivered, because I think equity of access is really important. And I don't see political as being a bad word. It's just about us becoming better equipped in bringing the data and the stories and the things that work well that we see in our day-to-day clinical practice and what our patients and families are telling us and just bringing it into that political conversation. Well, you talk about equity and inequity in palliative care was really a focus in a number of sessions. And another thing that came through was that COVID had really underlined this. Yes, and I really took away that there was inequity at a number of levels, you know, people receiving services too late, particular parts of the population not receiving services, inadequate services, and also that sometimes the services people were receiving wasn't fit for purpose, it wasn't what suited uh, their needs. And tied into that is what's culturally appropriate, isn't it? So there are real problems there with culturally appropriate care. Yes. No, a lot of the things that I found during the conference, I was just listening and listening and trying to really hear what people were telling us and I think that was one of the important messages that if we do listen people can tell us what they need and what they want and how services can be configured. So you're confident that that message will be taken away from the conference that it'll be more person-centred, culturally centred care? Yeah, and I think from looking at the discussions and the social media, I think people really resonated with the messages. They felt both challenged but also invigorated. And I think they were given pathways forward for some of these really difficult aspects of improvement and investment. I think people could see the way forward, how they each could play a role in making a difference on the ground, regardless of whether they're a frontline clinician, regardless of their discipline, regardless of where they're practising across the country. Now, there are around 40,000 people in Australia a year who do access palliative care, but another 40,000 who may want it or haven't got access to it. How do you get that out to them going forward? I think there's two key prongs to that. One is we need to invest in palliative care services more broadly, whether that in acute care, community care, and also in residential and aged care. But we also need the broader range of health professionals, whether they're working in the community or in the hospitals, to also have a core set of skills that allow them to contribute to delivering palliative care across the country. Talking about death is still a key sticking point. What needs to be done to open up that conversation and get people accessing services earlier? I think Dr Hussein Sial's talk really gave us some pathways to that. It's a broad range of conversations. It's actually about living well. It's about opening the door to those conversations and doing it over an iterative period of time so that people can talk about what's important to them, the the things that really matter to them and how best we can support them in achieving those things. And maybe changing the language around palliative care. People just don't automatically think it's about death and dying. Correct. And I think when people are ready to have those more challenging parts of the conversation, they will uh, work towards that. But we have to start where they are and in language that they can understand to begin the conversation. As Sien said, open the door. We heard statistics on regretful death, people receiving too much medical intervention in the last stages of their lives, ones wanting to die at home but not being able to do that. Are you confident these outcomes can be turned around? Yeah, I think in my day-to-day clinical practice, I see how we turn these things around all the time. And it's really about listening to what people 
need and what their preferences are and then configuring a person-centred model of care around them, whether that's the, the health professionals, um, the volunteer teams, but also the community and the people that are important uh, to them. Everyone has a part to play. We need to give that person a voice, their caregivers a voice, and then the systems will fall in place around them if they're invested in and they're available. Supporting care is also seen as critical. How can you assist to stop burnout? That must be a huge issue. Yeah, and I think informal caregivers play a huge role in the delivery of palliative care across the country, in the delivery of healthcare even more broadly. And we need to recognise them as the invisible group of people providing such an essential part of care for people with palliative care needs. But they also have needs um, themselves. We need to be supporting them early, recognising that they're an important part of the system early and providing them real opportunity to be supported along that whole illness journey. And if you had everything you wanted, if you were given your wish list, how would you like to see palliative care services delivered in 10 years' time? I think we need to make sure that every Australian, wherever they're receiving their care and whenever they need it, receive palliative care and to receive it quickly and so that it's timely access that's important in a culturally appropriate way in the the way that's meeting that person's need. That's it for this Croaky Voices look at the 2021 Oceanic Palliative Care Conference. You can catch all Croaky Conference News Service coverage of OPCC at croaky.org or by using the hashtag 21OPCC on Twitter. If you like what you're hearing, please follow, like and share and consider subscribing to Croaky News for just $60 a year to help us bring you the health stories we love to share with you. We